Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 5th. 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast. It focuses on major appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. On this week's podcast, we're going to look at an issue we speak about fairly commonly as it attracts the attention of both California and federal appellate courts pretty regularly. That issue is arbitration, the private quasi-judicial forum where more and more companies and employers seek to resolve disputes brought by their consumers and employees. On this issue, for a couple of decades, California's judiciary and the U.S. Supreme Court have been leaning in sort of opposite directions. Our state has pretty vigorously protected court access for parties who have signed arbitration agreements, generally in situations where a California court finds those clauses to be unfair or unduly restrictive of rights or remedies. The U.S. Supreme Court, meanwhile, has repeatedly emphatically endorsed a wide breadth for the Federal Arbitration Act and instructed lower courts, and often specifically California, that only in very rare instances should state laws or state court rationales stand in the way of agreed-upon arbitration clauses. And now a law firm petitioner and a cohort of defense side amici are hoping to invoke once more such a high court correction. This time those parties are asking the Supreme Court to invalidate a 20-year California high court precedent, one the petitioner thinks has been effectively, though never explicitly, overruled by that slew of arbitration-friendly SCOTUS decisions. The California precedent is called Armanderas versus Foundation Health Psych Care Services, and it sets some minimum requirements that employment arbitration contracts in the state must meet to be enforceable. In the case being petitioned now, a court of appeal found that an arbitration agreement between the law firm Winston and Strawn and its former partner Constance Ramos failed to meet those minimum standards, so the court didn't enforce it. That was fined by the California Supreme Court, which denied review, though a dissenting vote was noted there by Justice Chin. Winston and Strawn, though, and now a supporting cohort of Amici, argue the Armendera's minimum requirements cannot be squared with SCOTUS's more recent case law. They argue the standards single out arbitration as a more suspect variety of contract in just the way the U.S. Supreme Court has forbidden. Today, while that petition remains pending, we'll hear from two attorneys involved in the matter. First, I'll speak with Carla Gilbride, a senior attorney with the nonprofit firm Public Justice, who represents the underlying plaintiff here and who says Armendariz remains good law. Then Fred Heestand, who serves as general counsel for an amicus party here, the Civil Justice Association of California, will stop by to offer an opposing viewpoint. Before welcoming in our guests, let me first remind you of a couple of things. First, for anyone out there in need of some CLE credits, don't forget that listening to our podcast not only keeps you abreast of developing California jurisprudence, but also it's a great resource for California CLE credit. Once you listen to the show... You can find a short true-false test on our dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Completing that and tendering a almost nominal fee entitles you to one hour of California CLE credit. That's accessible for not just this episode, but just about every single one of our podcasts dating back over the past couple of years. Also, just a reminder that listening to this show is easier than ever before. In addition to finding it on our site at dailyjournal.com, you can also find it on SoundCloud and on Apple's podcast app by searching for Weekly Appellate Report or searching Daily Journal should also get you there. Okay, without any further preamble, let me welcome in Carla Gilbride. She's a senior attorney with Public Justice who represents the employee plaintiff here. Ms. Gilbride, thanks for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so let's briefly get uh, some context here of the the, the case that's being petitioned before uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. So Tell me about your client, Constance Ramos. I understand spent about between two and three years at the firm Winston & Strawn, but in the complaint, she alleges that uh, 
notwithstanding her bringing in a good amount of business and, and succeeding in a lot of the litigation that she brought over was overlooked for potential promotions um, and was, after not too long, asked uh, to leave. Can you help me flesh out the the underlying uh, fact pattern there? Sure. Um, Ms. Ramos had a very successful book of business that she brought over with her, and uh, she was succeeding in developing some new matters uh, in the time that she worked at Winston and Strawn, but she was habitually denied the opportunity to develop those matters. In fact, within just months of arriving, was was told not to bill on any new matters, um, was pulled back from the cases that she was actively working on, and that sabotage continued to the point that uh, within her first two years of being at the firm, she suffered a 56% decrease in salary. Um, and just it became an, an intolerable environment for her to remain. And so ultimately, she resigned under protest uh, after the ongoing discrimination. And after that, could you describe to me the, the nature of the claims that she brought against the firm? I understand there's a handful, but in particular, as they seem to especially relate to the, the claims at issue here, the, the legal arguments at issue here. There were you know, some claims that were brought under the auspices of, of California statutory protections, correct? Can you tell me a bit about, about those? Correct. Um, Ms. Ramos did bring claims under the State uh, Equal Pay Act uh, for pay discrimination, gender discrimination, as well as for retaliation, um, all of which she brought under uh, California state employment law. Great. Then let's jump ahead to when the, the Court of Appeal considers this question as to whether or not the, the defendant firm here, Winston and Strawn, can successfully compel all these claims into arbitration. There had been an agreement between the parties that spoke of arbitration. The the big precedent looming in the background here and at the center of the, the, the petition to the U.S. Supreme Court is this Armendariz, California Supreme Court ruling from, I think, 2000, which sort of sets some minimum standards for what arbitration agreements must provide. Tell me a bit about what those Armendariz standards are and sort of what the, the idea, the purpose behind them um, is, the idea that Cal Supreme Court had in mind in, in crafting them. Sure. So so what the California Supreme Court did in Armendariz was it was faced with the question of whether statutory employment claims, in that case under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, could be arbitrated. And the employees were arguing that they could not be arbitrated, that it would, it would not be possible to have a fair hearing in the arbitral forum uh, for those statutory employment claims. And the California Supreme Court said that that was not the case, that uh, these statutory claims uh, could be arbitrated, and it based that decision on precedent from the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Gilmer under the Federal Age Discrimination and Employment Act, said that, you know, statutory claims as well as contractual claims can be resolved in the arbitral forum and that the arbitral forum is an alternative, not an inferior forum to court. So what the factors that the California Supreme Court was looking at, which had come from earlier uh, federal precedents, were, you know, basically what are are some of the minimum standards um, of fairness to make that that would be available in court to make sure um, that the arbitral forum 
is the alternative and not the inferior forum, that all of those procedural safeguards are met. And basically that, you know, was necessary because California Civil Code Section 3513 specifies that the the underlying rights cannot be waived uh, by private contract when those statutory rights were established for a public purpose. And the statutory employment rights under the FIHA and under other California statutes you know, there's there's clear legislative history that those were established for a public purpose. And so the standards that the court in Armendaris looked at were just making sure that the person was not, in fact, waiving their rights because their rights would be protected um, in the arbitral forum. So essentially, the Calstrom Court is saying we're comfortable with suits like this being arbitrated, but only if we're pretty sure yeah, the rights that we've created, the states created, can be fully sort of redeemed in in that private forum. Is that fair to say? Right. And in most cases, you know, that have been decided since Armendaris, the statutory rights have been, you know, the the many, many um, state superior court, appellate court rulings, and California Supreme Court rulings have revisited the Armendaris factors and found that they were met and that, you know, arbitration continues to be a a fair and effective forum in which for, you know, in which non-waivable statutory rights can be advanced. Now, the Court of Appeal sided with um, Ms. Ramos, your client, and, and found that I think two of the Armendaris minimum standards were not met by the arbitration agreement between the, the parties. What what were the, the two factors that the agreement here didn't live up to? Well, there were actually you know three problems with the partnership agreement that Winston and Strong forced Ms. Ramos uh, to sign when she came to the firm. And I guess they can, can sort of fit into to two categories. You're right. You know, one deals with her available remedies for the statutory claims that she brought and the uh, contract's attempt to to take away from the arbitral panel their ability to give her, uh, award her some of those remedies. Those remedies would include reinstatement, would include front pay um, as an alternative to reinstatement, and also would, um, you know, the, the agreement purported to do away with the fee-shifting provision and say that each party would um, bear their own attorney's fees. So that those were all, you know, removals of remedies uh, that the California legislature has mandated um, as available to employees, regardless of which forum they're proceeding in, whether they're proceeding in court or arbitration. And then the second problem with the agreement is that it, it purported to split the costs of arbitration down the middle, um, which would have imposed costs on Ms. Ramos that she wouldn't incur if she were pursuing her claims in court. Um, and so that idea that, um, you know, instead of accessing the arbitral forum, which is supposed to be a less expensive and, and um, more cost-effective forum for resolving disputes. And that's something that the U.S. Supreme Court has you know, repeatedly pointed to. Um, arbitration is a less expensive and more informal uh, dispute resolution mechanism. The contract that um, Winston Strong 
promulgated and, and forced her to agree to um, essentially you know, made arbitration a much more expensive forum for her to resolve her dispute. Just real quickly on, on the cost piece there, could you describe to me what exactly Armendariz requires? I, as I understand it, it says in this context like this, Winston and Strong should have covered, I think it, the phrase is all costs unique to arbitration. So essentially in following that wording is the idea that they should have footed the bill pretty much all together for uh, the, the arbitration forum. So what Armandara says about costs is that um, the employer cannot impose costs uh, that the employee would not face in the judicial forum. So, so basically, you know, if there are additional costs associated with the arbitration, like um, paying for the arbitrator's time, for example, um, or paying for you know rental of the hearing room, which if you were in court, you wouldn't have to pay for rental of the courtroom, um, those would be the sorts of, of costs unique to arbitration. Um, and, and the way this is, you know, often dealt with in other courts under an unconscionability analysis, other other courts in, you know, California where you're not dealing with Armendaris or in other states where you don't have the Armendaris precedent is, again, to look at what would the filing fee be? What would the cost be um, for someone to bring this claim in court? And if there are additional costs tacked on top of that um, that are unique to the arbitral forum, that's often an, an indicator uh, that the particular contract that is imposing those additional costs is unconscionable. Okay, and to unspool one of the other pieces that you mentioned, the sort of um, worry the Court of Appeal had that uh, Ms. Ramos's potential remedies would be constricted uh, per the terms of this arbitration agreement. One piece the court seemed to be particularly hung up on is that as part of the agreement, the arbitrator wouldn't be able to substitute uh, his or her judgment for judgments that had been made by the firm. So I read that to essentially mean Ms. Ramos is suing over, say, uh, Equal Pay Act claims of, of sex discrimination and being unfairly compensated. Then the arbitrator would need to sort of independently weigh uh, maybe the decisions, the compensation decisions made by the firm and the terms of the arbitration agreement sort of preclude that ability. Is that Am I reading that correctly? That's correct. I mean, Ms. Ramos's discrimination action directly challenges decisions <clears throat> that were made by the partnership um, and that were, you know, ultimately endorsed by the executive committee, which is the authority that the contract, that the partnership agreement prohibits the arbitrator from from second guessing. So, you know, the the decisions to continually cut her pay, to remove her um, from billing matters that were lucrative and to to take away her opportunities for advancement. You know, these are the very decisions that she was challenging as discriminatory. So to say that the arbitrators cannot second guess those judgments, which would be fact questions going to whether or not she's entitled to particular types of relief uh, would really hamstring the arbitrators and their ability to adjudicate this matter and to give her the relief that she seeks. Okay. Um, and can you help me sort of through the rest of the jurisprudential arithmetic here? So if the court is saying that a couple of these Armendariz factors are not satisfied here, that's not quite the conclusion. Eventually, the court concludes that the agreement is unconscionable, and so that's why it can't be enforced. Is is essentially, um, are those two things sort of tantamount to each other, that not meeting all the Armendariz factors means 
an arbitration clause is unconscionable. It seemed like the court actually did some additional work in talking about unconscionability, but I'm not, I guess, 100% clear on how the arbitration or the, uh, the armadares factors and the unconscionability uh, analysis go together or if they're sort of separate. Can you help me out with that? Sure. Well, the Venn diagram of how unconscionability analysis in California overlaps with the Armanderis um, factors is there's a, a great amount of overlap, but I would say that the unconscionability circle on the diagram would be much broader. There are many ways that a contract, uh, whether it involves arbitration or not, can be found unconscionable that has that that have absolutely nothing to do with the Armanderis factors. The Armanderis factors only come into play um, if you're looking at a, a non-waivable statutory right on behalf of employees. And when those sorts of non-waivable statutory rights are at issue, uh, the Armanderis factors are a way that the California Supreme Court came up with of um, making sure that by moving into an alternative forum, the employees were not, in fact, actually waiving any of their statutory rights, that those rights would be protected in the forum. But the thing, you know, if, if, if you're not looking at those sorts of claims, then the Armanderis factors don't come into play at all. The other thing that you have to satisfy in order to, so, so you know, you're right that there is some overlap when you are dealing with non-waivable employment rights as you are here, but what has to be found in addition to the sort of unfairness and one-sidedness that typically constitutes substantive unconscionability, in California, you also need to prove procedural unconscionability. That's not true under every state's law. California is stricter on its unconscionability standards than many states are, and that it also requires that there be some procedural unfairness in how the contract was formed. So that was the second bit of work that the court did that you're referring to uh, when it said, okay, we've we've looked at the you know substantive unfairness of this uh, contract in looking at the uh, sort of through the prism of the Armanderis factors. Now we're going to also see if there was procedural unfairness that would allow us to conclude that the contract was unconscionable, and that is, in fact, what the court concluded. That makes sense. And, and the main reason on that, that last point, that it was procedurally unconsci- unconscionable, was mostly just sort of adhesive nature of it, sort of the take-it-or-leave-it d- dynamic? That Correct. Kind of- that, um, you know, Ms. Ramos did not have an opportunity to negotiate uh, the terms, that the substance of the partnership agreement can only be uh, changed by a vote um, of capital partners, which uh, she was never a capital partner, um, and you know could certainly never be changed by one individual. So even if she wanted to change it, she wasn't in a position to do so. Um, now this is a point brought up by the other side that uh, even so, taking sort of the thrust of the court of appeals ruling that the the main concerns is that a couple of these provisions of the agreement you know don't meet. California's standards, why not just strike those particular provisions, say, okay, you know, the cost provision, we'll take that out and and the firm will cover uh, all the costs unique to arbitration and also we'll scratch out that bit where the arbitrator can't have independent judgment. Um, You know, why not sever those pieces and have the the rest of it work out and have the the case still go to, to arbitration? Well, California has a long established body of law regarding severance, um, you know, that, that 
has nothing to do with arbitration, has nothing to do with, um, you know, these particular adhesive agreements that, that just says that, you know, courts do not have the power to rewrite agreements and add terms, you know, that, that would materially change the nature of what the parties agreed to. And that's the body of law that the Court of Appeal was relying on when it said here, there's, there is too much unconscionability. Uh, it, it really permeates the entire agreement. And if the court were to try to, you know, it, it's not just one thing or two things or even three things that can be surgically removed, that, you know, the, the court would actually be writing a new argument, a new contract um, for the parties. And that's not something that, you know, under California statutory law, the court is empowered to do. I wanted to touch on uh, the other. I mean, so we've mostly spoken about how Armanderas interacts with this case and left aside federal case law. But the one main thrust of the petition for cert is that you know, even if the standards of the or the the pieces of the agreement here don't meet up to the standards mm-hmm. of Armanderas, the fact is, since Armanderas has come down, the Supreme Court of the United States has issued you know, a handful of rulings that are pretty arbitration favorable that stress to lower courts that you know, the Federal Arbitration Act sort of means what it says and the court is going to enforce it pretty broadly and that if parties do agree to arbitrate, um, maybe not even in context where it seems like they're really at uh, equal levels of bargaining power, but if they do reach agreements to arbitrate, that those agreements should most of the time be enforced. Let me touch on one. You know, the main uh, case referenced by the parties on the other side here is the Concepcion decision that itself overturned an earlier California arbitration rule. Um, there, some of the language that is often invoked is that arbitration contracts should be treated on equal footing with all other contracts, and you shouldn't sort of have arbitration-specific tests that, uh, st- that uh, sort of look like the court is being overly skeptical of arbitration. You know, and so the argument follows that Armandera sort of seems like an arbitration-specific rule that uh, – you know, for these sorts of uh, contracts, these arbitration clauses, you had to have these uh, requirements. You know, why shouldn't folks read Ar- Armendariz as treating, you know, singling out arbitration in violation of Concepcion and, and subsequent SCOTUS case law? Well, what the California Supreme Court did in Armendariz was it applied a generally applicable contract rule, um, which was Civil Code Section 3513, to a particular question that was put before the court, which was, we have a mandatory arbitration agreement. Um, is it enforceable or does it waive these employees' non-waivable statutory rights? And the court's you know, answer was, no, it, it doesn't waive their non-waivable statutory rights um, based on this four-factor test that it pulled from an earlier um, federal opinion. But there was nothing, you know, it did not produce a rule that treated arbitration clauses differently from any other contracts that might seek to move the dispute into a different forum than the traditional courts. In fact, in you know walking through its analysis, the Armandaris court cited to an earlier opinion in the California Teachers Association case in, in dealing with the cost factor of whether a private um, disputant, a private plaintiff uh, could be required to pay additional costs 
in order to prosecute their claims, and that was dealing with payment for um, an administrative law judge. And the court in California Teachers Association said that, you know, that would, imposing those additional costs would implicate um, Section 3513 in a context having nothing to do with arbitration. So, um, you know, Concepcion talks about rules, state law rules that interfere with the fundamental attributes of arbitration. In Concepcion, the court found that California's Discover Bank rule, which was neutral on its face, didn't say anything about arbitration, uh, but just said that class action bans in adhesive consumer contracts were unenforceable. And the court, the Supreme Court found that that conflicted or, or burdened a fundamental attribute of arbitration, which was its informality. The decision here targets two aspects of Winston Strawn's contract, um, one that deprived Ms. Ramos of her statutory remedies um, by making the executive committee of the partnership the, the supreme authority and, and um, preventing arbitrators from second-guessing their decisions. And the second thing that the contract did was it imposed costs on Ms. Ramos um, that she would not face in any other forum. And, you know, imposing additional costs on litigants and taking away their statutory rights are not fundamental attributes of arbitration. No court has ever said that they are. And so there's nothing about this court of appeal decision that in any way, you know, follows the logic of Concepcion or treats arbitration less favorably than other torts of contract. And there's some some California Supreme Court case law that has issued since Concepcion that, you know, it's not like Armendariz has been on the books and it just hasn't been dusted off for a while since Concepcion's come down. There's been some prominent case law, including, say, the McGill versus Citibank decision from a couple of years ago where, you know, Armendariz has been invoked by the Cal High Court and um, you know, reiterated as as good law, I imagine sort of along the lines that uh, you were just describing. Is um, you know, that fair to, to say? Sure. What the California Supreme Court did in McGill was it looked at a contract very similar to this one that purported to take off the table completely a form of relief that is authorized by the California legislature. In that case, it was public injunctive relief that was authorized by the Unfair Competition Law and the Consumer Legal Remedies Act. And the agreement that Citibank had drafted said that in no forum, whether in court or in arbitration, um, could consumers seek public injunctive relief, just, just took that form of relief off the table completely. The California Supreme Court said that's a violation of um, Section 3513 and, you know, harkened back to lots of um, earlier cases where Section 3513 had been applied to contracts that, that purported to waive those rights that had nothing to do with arbitration. Said we're, we're treating, you know, this contract, which happens to be an arbitration contract, on a level playing field, on, you know, uh, on an equal basis with contracts that purported to waive those um, public-facing statutory rights that were outside of the arbitral context. And actually, just last Friday, uh, in a set of cases, the published opinion being filed in Blair versus Rent-A-Center, the Ninth Circuit uh, affirmed the California Supreme Court holding in McGill and said that uh, that rule, that um, Section 3513 applies and that pu public injunctive relief 
must be available in some forum was not preempted by the FAA. Now, just a couple more. One sort of central theme to the petition and the raft of defense amici briefs that came out in the last couple of weeks is that California sort of is unique and is uniquely flouting the the rules that the U.S. Supreme Court has has set down to broadly interpret the FAA. You know, I I take it that's sort of a premise that you might reject, but it does seem at least fair to say there's been some prominent back and forth between the two courts where the California Supreme Court has been you know uh, reversed by the by SCOTUS. We mentioned Concepcion also years to later the Direct TV case. It does seem like there's some back and forth between them in terms of how broadly this federal law should be interpreted. Is that is that just sort of a, a natural byproduct of you know the state court wanting to you know jealously guard the protections of state law? I mean, is, is there something unique about California's interpretation of, of arbitration clauses? There's nothing unique about what the Court of Appeal did here and the body of case law that it relied on. I mean, as you pointed out earlier, Essentially, the Court of Appeal grounded its analysis in unconscionability, and unconscionability is a general contract law principle that's recognized in all of the states and that is, in fact, more strictly construed um, and applied you know, with, with more requirements in California than in many states because California requires both substantive and procedural unconscionability. And so, you know, this this narrative that California is an outlier, California has gone rogue, you know, with with respect, I think it's 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 a little bit overplayed um in some of the the filings with the court, you know, perhaps because you mentioned some some previous cases and and perhaps trying to um draw on what's happened in the past to to make what the court of appeal did here seem more radical and, and more um, extreme than what it actually did. I mean, the, the extreme language here isn't in the Court of Appeal opinion. The extreme language here is in Winston and Strong's partnership agreement, which says that, you know, what the arbitral panel thinks doesn't really matter because they have to, um, you know, not only apply the agreement, but, you know, uh, accept the judgments and the decisions of the executive committee and the partnership without question. that That's pretty radical. Okay, just one last one. Um, you're working on your opposition brief, and I promise I'll let you get back to it uh, very soon here. But, um, you know, without giving away too much, what, what is sort of the central theme of your opposition to CERT? And with the current composition of the court and, and its, you know, FAA-friendly rulings in the past few terms, including, you know, just a couple of months ago, I think, uh, in the Lambs Plus case and Epic Systems last year, you know, do you think this seems like the sort of case that uh, would attract their attention? Well, I think I gave you a sense of the theme in my previous answer, which is to say that uh, William and Strong, in its partnership agreement, sought to set up its own executive committee as the supreme authority that could not be questioned, couldn't be questioned by a court, regardless of professions of illegality, um, which is what you know has been raised here, that, that their conduct violated the law. Um, they, they set up a contract that said that the partnership's decisions couldn't be questioned by an arbitral panel, even though the arbitral panel was the, the dispute uh, resolution mechanism that they turned to. 
and um, saying, you know, we submit all disputes to arbitration, but the arbitrators can't actually question our motives or, or apply the, the law fully, is not arbitration as the Federal Arbitration Act intended. It's lawlessness. And um, the California Court of Appeal was completely, you know, w- within its rights, and there was nothing unusual about the fact that it said this contract can't be enforced. It went too far. It's unfair and it's unconscionable. And, uh, you know, what we plan to um, point out in our opposition brief is that the decision the California Court of Appeal reached uh, in interpreting this particular contractual language would have been reached by courts in nearly every state under general contract principles of unconscionability. And there's, there's nothing that makes this case unusual and there's no reason that the Supreme Court needs to weigh in here. Carla Gilbright is a senior attorney with Public Justice in Washington, D.C. Thanks very much for being on our show. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. In just a moment, I'll be welcoming in Fred Heestand from the Civil Justice Association of California. But first, let me remind you one more time that the Daily Journal, and not just this podcast, is a great resource for attorneys in need of CLE credit. In just about every day's edition of the newspaper, at least a couple of attorney-written perspective columns appear, which can provide you some CLA credit. And of course, listening to this show is a good option too, if you'd like to claim one hour of California CLA credit. For listening to this podcast, it's super simple to do. Just go to our website, dailyjournal.com, find the podcast library, find this show, the most recent one, complete an associated true-false test, just takes a couple of minutes, submit that, and one hour of CLA credit is yours. Okay, I'd like to welcome on now Fred Heestand. He is a solo practitioner in Sacramento and also the general counsel for the Civil Justice Association of California, on whose behalf he filed an amicus brief urging the California Supreme Court to weigh in on this matter. Fred, thanks for being on our podcast. I'm glad to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Your amicus brief uh, filed now about a couple of weeks ago on behalf of the Civil Justice Association of California joined a significant volley of defense side amici uh, all joining in in the last couple of weeks to urge the Supreme Court to, to grant cert in this case. Um, yes, off, I should say that uh, uh, the brief that CJAC uh, uh, filed was also uh, joined in um, by the Association of Southern California Defense Council and Benjamin Schatz with Manat Phelps uh, is on the brief with me. He, uh, another friend of, of the podcast. So um, I'm going to ask you first, you know, why, um, in your view, has this case seemed to garner a, a pretty wide amount of attention from, from the defense bar, hoping that, that it gets the attention of the, the Supreme Court? I suppose it's one of the... Um, published opinions from a court of appeal that actually uh, discuss both Armendaris, which was decided in the year 2000 by the California Supreme Court, an opinion written by uh, Stanley Mosk, and uh, uh, AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion, a U.S. Supreme Court decision that was decided 10 years after Armendaris and which uh, has had uh, uh, commentators and courts uh, uh, saying that the two are in conflict in important ways, uh, but that conflict had not been resolved by the ultimate decider, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. So this case, Ramos, 
uh, gave an opportunity to do that. Um, and so I think I didn't even know in working on our amicus brief that there were uh, five other amici uh, that were independently uh, working on filing their own. Uh, so that uh, I only learned after ours were filed, and I looked at the Supreme Court's website and saw that there were five additional briefs uh, in support of the petitioner besides ours. So, uh, but but the fact that I didn't know it doesn't change the, uh, that that all of these amici briefs indicate a deep concern that uh, the Armendariz decision from the California Supreme Court is at odds with uh, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Concepcion and its progeny, including uh, uh, American Express versus Italian Colors and and other decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. So if that's the heart of the petition for cert here, that you can't square Armendariz and Concepcion and the cases that followed after it, what uh, what exactly is it in Concepcion that uh, Armendariz violates? Well, uh, Concepcion says that you can a state in in state law cannot uh, place uh, arbitration agreements on uh, a different footing or or treat them more hostily than they would any other contract that uh, contracts to arbitrate or like contracts to do anything else. And uh, uh, you know, the Concepcion involved a uh, class action waiver of uh, 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 California's statute saying, you know, you can bring class actions to enforce uh, your your state statutory rights. And uh, Concepcion said that a, a class action uh, can be waived because it goes against the fundamental attributes of an arbitration agreement. Arbitration was to make uh, your resolution of disputes uh, uh, more efficient, uh, cheaper, faster, and that a class action was contrary to that. Uh, so therefore, you could waive it. Armendaris uh, said that uh, there were certain things that you cannot waive, and the effective vindication of of a state statutory right. In 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 that case, it was the Fair Employment and Housing. Act of uh, California, which also is involved in um, Ramos, uh, that prohibits discrimination on account of race, gender, or other things in the the provision of em- employment or housing or, uh, services. And uh, the, the there's nothing really left. Italian Colors came out later on. Uh, after Concepcion and said that really the Federal Arbitration Act is concerned with the effective indication of federal law, not state law. So you can't uh, derive from the the uh, effective indication principle that is in federal law um, other requirements uh, stemming from a state law, such as Ramos said, uh, well, since... Uh, the plaintiff would be entitled under the Fair Employment and Housing Act to an award of attorney's fees, and the uh, uh, the arbitration agreement that uh, Ramos had with her law firm uh, partnership agreement 
uh, provided that I think the prevailing party would get attorney's fees um, uh, or that they would pay their own attorney's fees. Whatever it was, it was not as much as you would get under under the FEHA. Therefore, they said that that part of it was unconscionable. So that that in and other things uh, raised clear uh, conflicts between um, Armendaros and the U.S. Supreme Court's interpretation of the Federal Arbitration Act. I believe the agreement provided that they would overall split the split the costs and 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 pay for their own um, attorneys in, in in the case. Yeah, of- the FEHA entitled the prevailing party to the award of attorney's fees, and the agreement said each party would pay its own attorney's fees. Okay. And and the agreement required the party to share costs equally, uh, while Armendera said the employer had to pay all costs unique to arbitration. I just spoke with Carla Gilbride of Public Justice. She's representing Ramos. And um, let me do my best to sort of paraphrase um, a slightly different framing of this issue. So as you describe it, you sort of suggest that Armendariz, and then this case puts sort of too close of scrutiny or too strict of scrutiny when it comes to reviewing arbitration clauses. Um, but in her telling, you know, Ms. Gilbride suggests that state courts look to see that contracts, whether they be arbitration or not, are, you know, substantially fair or another way of saying it is whether they're unconscionable. Um, and if an arbitration clause sort of requires, especially ones that are sort of adhesion contracts that uh, folks don't have a ton of choice in signing, um, if they require you to, to give up certain rights that the state has enacted to make sure its employment market functions properly and doesn't discriminate, then that's an unfair contract, be it arbitration or not. And so those are sort of you know neutral general principles that they happen to apply here in an arbitration case, but are applicable generally. So what's wrong with that framing? Well, you know, California's unconscionability law has two aspects to it, uh, uh, procedural unconscionability and substantive unconscionability. Most, both of them have to be satisfied. You touched on the procedural unconscionability uh, requirement, which is easily satisfied under California law by just being an adhesion contract. Now, adhesion contracts um, are, what should you say, ubiquitous. Almost everything we sign from, you know, our, if you have an iPhone or Apple iPhone or any other kind of phone, when you buy it, there's uh, probably an arbitration clause, but there's certainly a warranty uh, clause in there. Uh, When you buy a car, uh, there's a, you know, long warranty clause. There, There are they're all adhesion contracts. So that that requirement is nothing. It's a substantive unconscionability uh, that that becomes the the devil here in in terms of voiding arbitration agreements. And substantive conscionability is is just anything that they feel they meaning those who are attacking arbitration agreements waive um, what is an unwaivable statutory right with these a public right well all kinds of rights are public rights that are waivable the, the principal one in california is is you can waive your right to a jury trial um you, you can also uh, waive your statute of limitations you can 
I suppose by you know a contract with an employee say that uh, you, you should not talk politics on your job because it could set up arguments between employees and disrupt the employment atmosphere for getting getting work done. So you could say that was interfering with freedom of speech, at least if you had to enforce it by some state action because someone was fired because they they wanted to constantly talk about politics. Uh, we know that uh, uh, a number of cases have said you're not really entitled to uh, pre-arbitration discovery, um, though uh, uh, earlier there were agreements before the U.S. Supreme Court stepped in that said if you didn't have uh, discovery, which is one of the things Armendaris uh, said you, you were entitled to, um, that, uh, that, uh, that that would make it substantially unconscionable. Um, but now we know that that's not substantially unconscionable. Now, you, there are some rights that, that certainly would, would not be waivable and, and would be unconscionable if you tried to, such as minimum wage laws. Uh, one cannot agree to, uh, you know, to be a slave or in, in bondage to an employer. One cannot waive with a a uh, doctor their uh, right to be ha- have informed consent. Um, you, you cannot waive your private attorney general actions. Uh, well, under the California Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to grant review of that. So. Uh, there are some rights that are waivable, and there's some rights that are not waivable statutorily. But a, a full vindication of um, state statutory rights, such as um, the Fair Employment and Housing Act um, rights, which ha- have with it the uh, uh, those uh, rights to, to the prevailing party getting attorney's fees, uh, has... Uh, uh, a right to punitive damages. It's it's arguable that those can't be waived, um, and uh, we believe that uh, though though California law of unconscionability is, as the uh, Ramos Appellate Court decided, says they're not waivable. Um, obviously, the Amici that have filed briefs in this case think these rights can be. Uh, uh, waived, and in fact, uh, if they're not waivable, they they're, uh, they would interfere with uh, the key attributes of arbitration: its informality, its uh, efficiency, its cost savings uh, aspects. As you describe it, and and from reading your and Mr. Shad's brief, it it sort of sounds to describe it in more kind of informal terms that uh, what you get if the state tries to to make sure all the provisions of, say, a statutory right remain available to a plaintiff in the private arbitration forum is, from the way you describe it, sort of like making arbitration the same as litigation almost, which would make it lose its the, the benefit that the court has described of its informality and, and efficiency and speed. Um, is that a fair way to sort of describe? Yes, you capsulize what I said in a long-winded way. Uh, in fact, you know, what I think uh, the most of the opponents of uh, um, employment arbitration uh, don't like it for, are, and those opponents are mainly plaintiff's lawyers, is the fact that it's uh, not like litigation. 
the normal trappings of litigation um, often are not involved in an arbitration agreement. Uh, if they were, why would why would anyone bother to work out an arbitration agreement that made it essentially the same as a court proceeding? Uh, there would be no efficiency and e- economy and uh, informality. Um, it would it would take long and it would cost as much as going to court. Um, and in fact, sometimes uh, people have argued that in certain uh, cases of, of arbitration, uh, they they do become expensive and and uh, and go on as long as a court trial would, and which makes people wonder why did they agree to arbitrate? You know, they just should have just gone to court. It might have been cheaper. Uh, you know, some of these cases, you know, you pay the arbitrator a thousand dollars a day. These are certainly the instance in commercial arbitration, but you know uh, the confidentiality, which is there was one uh, uh, amicus brief submitted in this case in Ramos that uh, by uh, representing uh, a law firm, another Ropers and Gray, a large law firm, and in which they focused on the confidentiality agreement, which the court in Ramos said was unconscionable here. Um, because uh, they construed it as limiting uh, the plaintiff's rights to discovery, which can be limited. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that the plaintiff's rights to discovery can be limited, and the defendant's rights to discovery can be limited too. Um, you know, across the board. But uh, you know that that destroy, destroys confidentiality agreements, which are important in particularly like in a partnership agreement like this one, where if you get into arguments about compensation, uh, it, it often involves who did how much work, bringing in what clients, working on what client matters. Um, those are all things that may jeopardize client confidentiality, and it's important to have a confidentiality agreement apply in such an arbitration uh, arrangement. Okay, just a, a couple more. I was hoping to have you flesh out a, a bit more one theme that seems to run throughout both the petition for cert and, and the amicus briefs that California is something of a an outlier when it comes to seeking to um, you know limit arbitration clauses. You argue that it more so than other state courts looks to shirk the mm-hmm. Supreme Court's sort of repeated rulings to construe the FAA pretty broadly and to you know generally allow folks that have agreed to arbitration to uh, go to that forum. Um, you know, to, to what extent is, is it fair to, to paint California as, as really trying to um, do everything it can to get around the Supreme Court rulings? And is it just, you know, a, a state court looking to protect its citizens? I mean, how, how would you describe it? Well, you know, courts have to decide the cases that are brought before them. Um, so it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's, uh, uh, it's totally fair to say that the uh, California courts, particularly the Supreme Court, which I think is uh, our state Supreme Court, which has largely um, gotten the, the message on uh, recently on uh, the arbitration and the preemptive scope, broad preemptive scope of the Federal Arbitration Act. But if you look at it, um, you know, 
in California since Armendaris was decided. Uh, there were 365 opinions by intermediate appellate courts, most of which are not reported, which means you, you can't uh, cite them as any kind of precedent. They're just, uh, you know, they're, they're useless for, for any uh, citation as authority in other cases. Uh, 264 of those 365 were not reported, which and then and then after Armendar or after Concepcion came out, there have been 161 opinions decided involving just employment arbitration agreements, um, and uh, out of those, o- only 48 um, there are appellate opinions have been cited. Only 48 have been reported. But many of those struck down agreements uh, uh, on the base of Armendaris and only paid uh, lip service to Concepcion without coming to grips with the the basic conflicts between the two. So uh, that's where we are. And the uh, California Supreme Court can't it can't take, uh, you know, all all cases on all matters. takes a very small percentage on review. So it uh, turns down uh, a number of uh, the petitions for review to it. And the U.S. Supreme Court turns down an even larger percentage. So, you know, it takes a long time for these cases to get the right case to percolate up that a court will say, well, this is now posing the... uh, the conflict in a way that we can clarify and make more certain uh, what our what our rulings mean with regards to the Federal Arbitration Act and state uh, laws that uh, may infringe upon it uh, or treat uh, arbitration um, agreements more hostily than other contracts. Um, so it, it it takes a long time. Um, but Armendaris has been around for for 20 years. It it, uh, it seemed like a path-breaking opinion when it, it came out. But uh, like I said, 10 years after that, it it should have been trimmed. And this, uh, you know, starting in 2010. So now we're almost we're nine years after that. So it's it's, it's got to be time soon that uh, the U.S. Supreme Court will. Uh, take a appropriate case from California and sort out uh, the extent to which uh, Armendaris, which the California courts cite as the leading opinion now on uh, in, uh, looking at the validity of employment arbitration agreements and see whether it really does square uh, with Concepcion, Italian colors, and uh, other decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. In terms of just the practical implications of, of Armendaris being reconsidered or trimmed or struck down altogether, I mean, I'm sure Winston and Strawn is not alone in, in having arbitration clauses and employment agreements. I'm sure tons and tons of employers in California do. I mean, how many of those clauses do you think could be seen as running afoul of Armendaris? Is just what are the what's the extent of the sort of practical implications here? Well, there, I think there's serious practical implications that, that the, the confidentiality uh, aspects, for instance, uh, how you phrase you're trying to protect confidential material, which would be one reason you want to go to arbitration because it's kind of 
private. Uh, so you have a, a confidentiality clause, but then if it's phrased in such a way that someone can argue, oh, well, uh, I can't talk to anybody else in preparing my case for uh, uh, the hearing, so I can't I'm effectively precluded from any discovery. Um, and therefore, it's void. I mean, all kinds of, well, almost every law firm has, has a partnership agreement, I'm sure, has a confidentiality clause in its arbitration agreement. If it's going to go by arbitration, uh, be decided by arbitration. So that, yeah, they're going to have to go back and uh, they can't unilaterally change that. So they probably have to open it up and uh, and redraft it and uh, get the agreement of the of the partners. I don't know whether clients as third parties would have some some standing to intervene in those matters and say, uh, wait a minute, our client matters may, uh, may, may uh, come up now because the uh, confidentiality clause is considered void and, uh, and of no effect. Oh, and, and let me say another thing the, about Armendaris, which is a very strange uh, uh, and the main petition for cert focuses on this in the in the Ramos case um, that, that uh, the Armendaris holds that uh, if you have more than one and, and other cases that have interpreted Armendaris, including Ramos, if you have more than one provision that is unconscionable, this may make the whole agreement void. That you can't sever uh, that that provision. It's it's a unique severability uh, rule that is applied to uh, Armendaris because in most contracts uh, the courts recognize a severability clause and will sever one or two or maybe three provisions of it and say the rest of the contract can be uh, enforced. In fact, the in Ramos, the Superior Court in San Francisco found two provisions unconscionable, a venue provision that said uh, you, you had to do it in Chicago, you had to do your arbitration in Chicago. And since the partner was in San Francisco, who was contesting the agreement, the court found that unconscionable and said uh, it should be in San Francisco. And uh, and then the cost-sharing uh, provision, the, the court also struck down but severed it and said the rest of the uh, the the agreement can uh, uh, is is still good, but the uh, court of appeal found other provisions unconscionable, such as that you can't get punitive damages um, under the under the arbitration agreement, and uh, and you can't get all of the relief that you could get under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, which is a claim that that was brought um, and. Uh, probably no one in the in Winston and Strawn when they did the the arbitration agreement thought that someone would bring a Fair Employment and Housing Act uh, discrimination because it's not mentioned but it says all all matters that uh, involve um, the employment relationship will be resolved by arbitration. So the the, the courts have said both the Superior Court and the Court of Appeal said that was broad enough to encompass um, the Fair Employment and Housing Act um, um, claims that were asserted here. But uh, yeah, it'll it'll every every time 
there is a, uh, a a case that expands Armendaris in some way and publishes, and that case is published or reported, and it strikes down um, some provisions in the arbitration agreement. I'm sure that uh, the the employers and their lawyers um, go back and look at their arbitration agreement and and think of ways to update it. It's probably going to be difficult to go back and retroactively change it, though uh, some court cases have said that uh, uh, the, the ag- agreements to uh, arbitrate can be uh, changed retroactively by um, by the employer, and the, the agreement provides that it itself to update according to existing law. But uh, it, it's going to have a big practical effect, which is probably why uh, without my knowing it at the time, uh, there there were five other uh, uh, Miki independently working on their briefs in this case uh, to file them around the same time. Just one one last one, then you have, you're someone that uh, bets on Supreme Court cert grants. If uh, that's a, a thing that can be gambled on, you certainly don't tend to wager on cert grants being given. Um, but here, you know, as you say, there's a, a good number of folks that uh, weighed in alongside you. What, to what extent do you think that it's likely the Supreme Court will decide to, to grant review here? Well, the odds are, are against anyone petitioning for cert. Um, and, uh, but, um, you know, it's like, what is it, 1% or something like that, 1, one in 100, very low, not, probably not more than 4% or so. Um, so the the odds are against us, but of course, um, the odds don't really mean anything when you look at uh, uh, you've got a clear conflict with uh, state and federal law, which I, I, the amici, the amici that I represent and that that uh, uh, Benjamin Schatz represent, obviously, uh, and all the other amici that have filed briefs. Um, in in this case, think that that conflict is clear and needs to be resolved. So we're counting on that. We're counting that on, on the court saying, "Hey, it does look like it's time for us to take a look at Armendaris in view of what we've been saying for for 19 years since we decided Concepcion that the uh, California courts don't seem to have picked up." Um, and modify their Armendaris decision accordingly. So I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't bet money on it, but I'd say we have a better than the normal odds of of, uh, of the court granting cert on this. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll find out uh, soon enough, but we'll leave it there for now. Fred Heastan is the general counsel at Civil Justice Association of California and a sole practitioner in Sacramento. Fred, thanks for, for being with me. I appreciate it. All right, Brian. Thank you. Okay, that's our show for July 5th, 2019. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Carla Gilbride and Fred Heestand. It's also to my production staff here, principally our new digital editor, Henrik Nielsen. And thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. One, that CLE credit can be easily claimed for your having listened to this episode. Just look for it on our site, dailyjournal.com, in the podcast library. Also, don't forget to look for us on the various podcast streaming places where you tend to get this sort of media by searching for Weekly Appellate Report. Finding us there and tuning in and rating 
is all super helpful if it helps other folks find the program. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week, and happy birthday, America. <laughs>